Jeremiah chapter 32 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and uh, you'll be fairly lost, I think, on Sunday nights without a Bible, anytime really, without a Bible, but we cover some ground, and, and it's good to see what we're talking about with your own eyes as we're talking about it. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord and from us uh, to you this evening. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, and we remember that very often Jeremiah, uh, he's, he is not, the Holy Spirit is not interested so much in a strict chronology of events with him. Uh, the things that are recorded within the book are recorded and, and clustered together based upon uh, the subject matter that they're dealing with. And so it jumps around a little bit uh, chronologically. And when we pick it up here in chapter 32, the Babylonians are besieging the city uh, of Jerusalem. It is in the final year before the Babylonians are going to conquer uh, the city ultimately and completely the full story behind uh, Jeremiah's imprisonment during that period is, is going to be recorded for us a little bit later in chapters 37 and 38, but that gives us a little bit of a sense for what's happening here. The word that came to Jeremiah, verse 1, from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was in the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's a mouthful, isn't it? And it's always um, amusing to me when I'll hear somebody speak about the Bible as being this collection of myths or that it's just a man-made history or some other way that they dismiss the Word of God with it. And when somebody says that, uh, usually I realize that this is a person who has never read the Bible. The Bible never reads like a myth. It reads like fact. It reads like history. There are uh, the names of people that are involved in the events, the locations that they occur, occur in, the very dates in which the events occurred. God is uh, almost challenging anyone who desires to disbelieve to uh, go check it up on it uh, themselves. One of the most exciting uh, things, uh, news for me as a Christian and a student of the Bible is the fact that there are archaeologists working all through uh, the Middle East. And I just say, dig, baby, dig. Just keep on doing it because all of these questions or the uh, doubts that people pose related to things, then they end up digging into a tell and they discover that this is historically accurate and so forth. And uh, archaeology with a uh, honest archaeology is a, a great friend of the Bible. But this lays it, it down for us in technical terms, wonderfully technical, uh, but lets us know that the city is about to fall. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. He is imprisoned for the most part in that final uh, year. And uh, the reason for the imprisonment uh, is given to us in verse 3, 4. That's a reason word. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up saying, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall take it. And uh, prophesying the fall of Jerusalem and Zedekiah was concerned that this would dishearten the, the battle spirit of the soldiers uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And then further prophesying that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, who was the final king uh, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem for the third and final time and took them fully into captivity, 
and prophesying further that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him uh, eye uh, to eye. And uh, so the city is going to fall. Zedekiah, you're going to survive the fall, and you're going to be taken captive by the king. You will not escape, though they will try to escape. Uh, They won't escape the king and his uh, cabinet, uh, but they will one day uh, look uh, eye to eye with Nebuchadnezzar following the conquest. And then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So you can see how this message would be over a long period of uh, 40 or 50 years would be rather disheartening. Uh, to the spirit of those that are fighting for Jerusalem at that time. So Zedekiah tries to deal with it in the way that he does. The only problem that he's facing is it's the truth. It's the truth. And so rather than uh, face the truth of their circumstance, and that is they were heading into judgment at the hands of the Babylonians because of their idolatry, their wickedness, their refusal to obey God, rather than uh, heed the message and turn, uh, turn back to God and have uh, uh, the circumstances change as a result. Uh, they don't like the message, and so they jail the messenger. This is exactly the wrong uh, kind of thing to do. We see it in a different kind of way in our culture. They don't like the message, and so uh, ban the Bible and ban the Ten Commandments in every kind of public setting and so forth, and it won't be long before they're trying to ban it in churches, at least certain subjects that we can address and so forth that they deem to be uh, unloving by the basis of uh, their intolerance and their uh, horrible misunderstanding of what true love is. But so it is all through the ages, and that's the battle that uh, all of God's people are always in the middle of, and Jeremiah found himself in it in kind of a stark uh, degree. And Jeremiah uh, said, Uh, in response to all of this, the word of the Lord came to me while he's in this imprisoned circumstance saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, so it's his cousin, he's going to come to you. And when he comes to you, this is what he's going to say to you. By my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So this is a, a, in one of the most beautiful examples of what we know in the New Testament as a spiritual gift of a word of knowledge. Uh, Jeremiah is given a word of knowledge, a piece of knowledge, a fact that he could not otherwise know apart from revelation from God. Holy Spirit does that even yet today. So he receives this word of knowledge, this is going to happen. His cousin is going to come, offer him to redeem uh, the land the, uh, of, uh, in Anathoth. In the law of Moses, when a family member could no longer hold on to their piece of land as a, uh, as a Jew, rather than sell that land out of the family, because land was very important to be held within the family, you would take that land and you would offer it for sale to a family member who could afford to pay for it, 
and then they would buy the land, and though you would lose the land, it would come still be held by the family. And this was the right of the kinsman redeemer uh, to do that. So whoever was the closest blood relative that had the means to uh, purchase the land, then it would be offered them to do so. And apparently, uh, Jeremiah is in that uh, condition. Now, it is interesting in terms of this uh, offer that is being made to him to redeem uh, the land. Usually, if somebody came to you and said, listen, I can't hold on to this land. We've hit some hard times, some bad, uh, you know, sequence of crops or so forth. You would be very eager to buy uh, the land. But Hanamel comes and offers this land for Jeremiah to purchase at a time where Anathoth is now in the hands of the Babylonians. I mean, it is good for nothing. Babylon has made it a part of the Babylonian Empire, and there is no indication that the Babylonian Empire is not going to go on for hundreds of years uh, into the future. And so, for uh, this has kind of got to have a double sting, I think, for Jeremiah a little bit. We remember earlier in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah's family in the city of Anathoth not only rejected him as a prophet, but they had conspired together to kill uh, Jeremiah to silence his voice. So this is the attitude that his family has already shown to him in his prophetic ministry and the, you know, the deep uh, intimate concern that they have for him as a human being, but now when they need some money, 17 shekels from, for some land that is useless, uh, they come not to visit him in prison, not to say how unfair the circumstances are. Can we encourage you in any way in your calling and in your faithfulness to God? There's none of that. It's all a money grab. And so this can really, really hit uh, Jeremiah the wrong way. Uh, again, the land being already in the control of the Babylonians, it was worthless. This is known as a buyer's market uh, to the nth degree. I mean, nobody's, nobody is selling anything with the hope of uh, anyone buying anything. You buy it at, at rock-bottom prices, it belongs to Babylon at this point. And so here comes the offer. God lets Jeremiah know ahead of time that his cousin is coming with this deal so that he will then say yes to it. Because given uh, the market conditions of you in real estate and so forth, uh, uh, there was no way that uh, as just a, uh, a handling of the facts of the situation that you would ever buy uh, this land. But the Lord told him, word of knowledge, this is what's going to happen. And uh, I like it there in uh, verse uh, 8 as... Uh, the word then, and so the word of knowledge comes to pass. Hanamel, my uh, uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord, and he said uh, to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it uh, for yourself. And so this is just so insulting on every level. I mean, it, it, more than insulting, it is personally hurtful on every level. And yet he comes, and uh, because Jeremiah is probably the only one that has any money uh, at the moment, though he, uh, I doubt he had much. And then I think very, very refreshingly, 
um, uh, the, uh, Jeremiah indicates that when all of this happened, then I knew that this was the word uh, of the Lord. And so uh, here he is, he gets a word of knowledge from the Lord, and then it's only as that word of knowledge comes to pass that he realizes 100%, yes, that was what the Lord spoke to uh, me. I think it's so uh, comforting uh, to see this in Jeremiah that it wasn't this uh, formula for understanding the will of God or understanding the voice of God, uh, that even Jeremiah heard this from God, and, uh, but he wasn't exactly sure until it came to pass, just as God had said. The reason that that comforts me is understanding the will of God in my Christian experience, and I'm sure you're the same. Uh, it isn't always that easy to find out what it is. I, I could wish on one hand that in the Bible there was a formula. You do this and this and this, and then God will do this and this and this, and then you will know that it is the will of God. But God doesn't operate that way. Uh, he operates very supernaturally. He uses gifts of the Spirit. He can give life to the Word of God. Lots of ways that He reveals uh, His will to us. One of the reasons I, th I think that He keeps this so personal in terms of guiding us and revealing His will for our lives and giving us revelation is, is it keeps us dependent upon Him. If knowing these things were from God, if I could know them absolutely through some kind of a, a fail-proof uh, uh, formula, then what I would inevitably do, I don't speak for you, but I speak for myself, is I would ultimately develop a relationship with the formula, and I would fail to develop a close relationship and maintain a close relationship with God in order to receive His revelation and His direction. And so, He keeps it in this very personal place. But it was nice. You think about Jeremiah. Here we've got 50-some uh, chapters here in front of us, and uh, we're over halfway through there. This is a guy that can hear from God. The Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, and yet even he in this circumstance uh, said, I didn't quite know, absolutely, uh, until it came to pass, this word of knowledge, uh, just as it did. And there isn't like this hotline uh, to heaven that, it, you know, we all learn to hear God in our own way, tested by the Word of God. That's a supreme uh, means of revelation. All other revelation is tested by that. Uh, but uh, here is this very interesting uh, look at the personal side, the humanity of Jeremiah, even in his calling as a, as a prophet, and I think it's very, very comforting. We operate, w when we operating this way and desiring to uh, walk in the will of God, to hear his direction and to, and to receive his revelation, uh, he doesn't always reveal himself uh, in this kind of a way, but, uh, but, but he can. Sometimes he holds things to himself for a very long time before he reveals stuff to us. But that we walk in the knowledge that God wants us to be in the middle of his will even more than we want to be in his will. And so he, he has his ways of uh, getting us, moving us along in his will and getting us into just that place. Then I knew that uh, this was the word of the Lord. And so I bought the field. Here's Jeremiah. He obeys, of course. He bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth. And uh, I weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Not a lot of money 
money, but a lot of money uh, when you're going into captivity. And, and then the real estate transaction as it occurred in the ancient world, he signed the deed. That was a part of it. The deed would then be sealed. There were witnesses there that would have uh, been in place. That is a, the ancient form of a notary. And uh, then they weighed the money in the scales to make sure that it was the, exactly the 17 uh, shekels. And so the transa uh, transaction uh, you know, moved forward uh, in, in this way. And so I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom and that which was open. So there were two copies of it. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, the son of uh, Masiah, never name uh, uh, any of your children. Uh, never give them uh, a first name that has three vowels consecutively uh, in that name. Uh, that's wrong to do to them and wrong to do to people that try to pronounce their name for the rest of their lives. And so he, he, Baruch was his personal secretary and, um, and an assistant to, uh, to Jeremiah. The, the purchase deed was given uh, to him in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of all of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat uh, in the court of the prison. And so everyone witnesses the transaction. Now, what's happening here is we've got uh, a visual, uh, God, God is working through, pro, through Jeremiah uh, repeatedly in his ministry of doing these kind of outward, these action kind of prophecies. So the word gets out through, through the city of Je uh, Jerusalem that uh, Hanamiel's cousin has come uh, to allow him to act as the kinsman redeemer uh, in the Goel in, in redeeming the land from his cousin there in Anathoth. The land is already in, you know, in the control of the Babylonians, and Jeremiah's buying the land. Is he's cuckoo? What in the world is he doing? Come and see. Now you remember, back in those days, they didn't have 170,000 channels on the television. So entertainment, any way you could get it. So here was something that would kind of spread through the ranks. Let's go see what Jeremiah is doing now. Who in their right mind would buy land at this time? So quite a considerable group of witnesses have gathered around now to watch all of this thing. Why in the world would he buy this land? And God's going to reveal it to him in just a moment. And then he charged Baruch before them saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed and this deed, which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last for many days. And so he's instructing Baruch to take uh, those two deeds, put them in a great clay pot. They would then seal uh, the clay pot with uh, the opening with some kind of a seal that they would then seal with tar. All of this is very much in line. If any of you have uh, either been to Qumran in Israel uh, to see that where the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, discovered or you've seen something on the television related to it or uh, in the internet, this very same kind of thing. And so uh, the, they, the, the deeds were to be put into a clay pot, kept in an arid uh, place so that they would survive the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity and could be brought out uh, at the end of, of that captivity. And here is the whole lesson, the whole message uh, behind this action sermon uh, of Jeremiah 
People again must have thought he was crazy, but here's the point. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and vineyards and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And so it was a prophecy that, yes, uh, I have prophesied that the land is going to be conquered by Babylon. Zedekiah is going to be taken captive. But God has also declared that following the Babylonian captivity, you will uh, return, the Jewish people will return back into the land and it will prosper once again. It must have been uh, great news to those who were now believing Jeremiah's prophecies that all of this uh, difficulty was in their immediate future, but that a restoration was in uh, their, their future as, uh, as well. And so here is, again, this action sermon, once again, with the, with the point that they will come back into the land. Now, Jeremiah, he does all of this, but he's very perplexed by what God has had him uh, do here. And he's going to ask the Lord about it. It doesn't make any sense to him. I mean, 17 shekels is 17 shekels. I don't care who you are. And you just had me buy a piece of land that is in the hands of the Babylonians at this point in time, and he doesn't get it. He's received the instruction from God to do this, but he doesn't get why God would have him, uh, you know, do what it is that he's, he's done here. And so he's going to ask God uh, about that. There is no harm in ever hitting a circumstance within our life that, that God calls us to do something, and it confuses us. We don't understand. Why would you have me do this? I don't get this. And then to ask the Lord, uh, why can you give me an explanation for this? We don't demand an explanation. God, when we do that and we ask God, it doesn't mean that he will ever give us an explanation. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight or by explanation. But sometimes God will give an explanation if it serves his purposes to do so. And he's going to reveal to Jeremiah why he has him uh, do exactly what uh, he has uh, done here. But uh, the, the main thing is, is that when God calls us to do something, we have to follow Jeremiah's order, and that is you do it, and then you ask your questions. You don't ask your questions and then do it. And, and, I, and I look at a situation here where God has made his will made clearly known to Jeremiah. He knew what God wanted him to do. Now, he needed to do that and ask his questions later. So he's got the order right. And so here he brings his perplexity uh, to the Lord. Now, when I had declare, uh, delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, <laughs> I don't know what the 2017 American equivalent is of that. I haven't given any thought except in this moment, which is always a little dangerous to do. But, I mean, it's just like, Lord, what, you know, kind of thing. He says, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Now, He's going to pose a question to the Lord here. But in his prayer, before he gets to that, uh, to that question, he spends the early part of his prayer uh, reminding himself of who God is. 
and how great God is. And he begins there in verse uh, 17, and I don't want to bog down too much here, but it is important to look at, and it's certainly worth looking at a a little more, more fully on your own. He begins the prayer by reminding himself, certainly not God, reminding himself of the greatness of God's power. He doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 18, and he reminds himself of God's love, of God's grace, You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity uh, of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great and the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. So he reminds himself of the grace of God, the love of God. And then he moves on to remind himself in prayer here uh, uh, of the greatness of God's wisdom. You've heard the old saying that prayer changes things. And uh, the first thing that it does is it changes us. And so he's coming and he's spending some time in the early part of his prayer reminding himself of the greatness of God, great in his power, great in his grace, but also in his wisdom. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all of the ways of the Son of Man to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so he reminds himself of these things about God before he gets to his supplication or to his request. I don't, I don't know how exactly it happened, but it happened early in my Christian life. And I know that it happened in my life because of um, just uh, iron sharpening iron, interconnectedness with uh, men and women who knew the Lord far longer and far more deeply than, than I did at that time and maybe uh, still do. And one of the things that I would notice when I would ask them to pray for me concerning certain things, and a gentleman by the name of Lee Shaw was chief in this, Lee's dear in the heart of both my wife Karen and I, in that he led my wife to the Lord over the telephone. But he remains a good friend to this day. But I would notice that when Lee would pray for me in the early days of my Christian life, he would never head straight into the intercession or the need that I had given to him. But he would always spend some amount of time, whether it was seconds or a couple of minutes, just acknowledging the greatness of God. God, thank you for that throne of grace that is open to us. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you're greater than every problem that we could ever bring to you. Thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for your wisdom and the wisdom that you promised to give to us if we'll just ask you for it. And there would always be that kind of turning around of the circumstances because when I would bring a a prayer need to someone, to an elder, a pastor, which is what he was, uh, and ask for prayer. And for me, you know, the problem was using up all of the oxygen in the room. It was the big, gigantic thing. And what Lee recognized for his own life before he could even intercede for me properly, and he knew it was a need in, in my own life, was to now no longer see God in the light of the greatness of the problem, but to see my problem 
in the light of the greatness of God and to take some time and just to remember that uh, this is who it is that we're praying to. And many of you know that when you ask me for prayer, I almost never go straight in to the need, but always spend some amount of time. It's not a formula, but it's something that's become a part of a, a need for me in my own life to before I bring this need to God, to spend some time considering the greatness of his power, of his love, of his grace, of his wisdom, that he is greater than every problem or need that we will bring to him. And it's important for us as Christians. This is not just an Old Testament model related to prayer. So often if we don't, if we don't spend this kind of time in, in an introduction to prayer to the Lord and worship of him, acknowledging who he is, uh, then we have the tendency to just go straight to the need. The need is so great, we lift it up to him. And since we don't have a sense yet in the immediate, immediacy of the need that he is greater than the need, we just simply pick it back up and walk away from the prayer and uh, carry it on ourselves rather than realizing, no, let's just leave it with the Lord here. You remember when Jesus was approached by the disciples and they said, teach us how to pray. And he said, you shall pray after this manner. Uh, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it is only after the early part of that model prayer is spent giving consideration to the greatness of the God that we are bringing our needs to that later in the prayer, the intercessions, the specifics are then laid out, give us this day our daily bread. And so the model holds, it's an important one for us. We see it modeled in Jeremiah. And you'd say, well, Jeremiah, you know, he's been a prophet for 40 years or whatever it's been at this point. And, and uh, I mean, surely he can just cut straight to the chase. I think the longer we walk with the Lord, uh, and these things that we look at and say, well, you can just jettison these things as you reach maturity. These are the things that come to mark our lives uh, more than ever. He goes on in his confusion and in his prayer to give uh, consideration to the past history that God had uh, were, uh, of his work uh, in the nation of of Israel. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel and among other men. And you have made yourself a name as it is to this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you have given them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And again, it's a very important thing that he does here. Before he gets into his intercession here, he stops and he remembers the great things that God had done in the past of the nation of Israel. We do the same thing when we remember. So often we, when we hit a, a situation in our life, uh, so often that situation seems so large, but it's actually smaller than other difficulties and trials that God has already brought us through. And to take some time and just say, Lord, you've brought me through deeper rivers than this, deeper streams than this. And, and, I, and I just acknowledge that uh, so that I don't lift this need up to you and then carry it away on my, my own, own shoulders afterwards. 
And they came in and they took possession of it, speaking of the children of Israel, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law, and they have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do, and therefore you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. In other words, Lord, I know that Judah is in the fix that we are in. Uh, because of our own sin. I know it isn't a failure of your wisdom or your power or your love or your uh, ability, but it is uh, the, f- the failure of the people. Look, the siege mounds, uh, Babylon, with their mounds being built up against the walls to take the city. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it, and because, uh, it, because of the sword and famine and pestilence, what you have spoken has happened. Uh, there you see it. And then he comes to it, and you have said to me, the God of such power and such wisdom and such grace and such love, you come to me in the midst of this mess and you tell me, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. So, I mean, he's really struggling here. What I know about you and what you're telling me to do uh, seems a little bit inconsistent. And so, uh, he's confused, but you've got to give him credit. Uh, when you have doubts or you have confusion about how God is working in our lives, and that will never stop until we get into heaven, uh, the, you know, the one thing, well, he does a lot of things right here, but one of them is to bring, you know, his confusion to the Lord. The Lord may give us uh, illumination concerning things, or he may not, whatever he knows is best Uh, in the circumstances. But for Jeremiah here, God has something to say to Jeremiah. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I don't know how many verses you have underlined in your Bible. I tend not to underline a lot except in the one that I'm teaching from. But there are certain verses in the Bible that I, that I read devotionally and so forth that, uh, that are underlined, and uh, this is uh, certainly one of those. I am, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And it's a good question, and God asked Jeremiah of that. In other words, he's revealing to him. There's nothing out of control about your situation, Jeremiah. God is speaking to him of his sovereignty. That is that he is almighty uh, over the entire uh, situation. And the problem that Jeremiah is facing, nothing is too big uh, for God, including this problem and that this question uh, that he has. You remember that uh, you look back in verse 17, and Jeremiah begins his prayer here with the claim, there is nothing too hard for you. And then the Lord picks up part of Jeremiah's prayer and uh, poses it to him, is there anything too hard for me? In other words, Jeremiah began the prayer by saying that about me, and uh, I'm asking you the question, do you really believe what you're praying? I don't doubt that probably half the prayers I pray, the Lord could interrupt them in that way. You're saying all of these things, but let's take a moment and see if you really believe what you're saying to me in the prayer, just to make me stop short and say, yeah, yes, I do. I do. I really do. I believe that. And, uh, and so Jeremiah might have been thinking, hey, listen, don't use my prayer against me. 
and I said something good here, uh, that nothing's too difficult for you, and the Lord yet challenges him in his confidence related to that. I remember years ago when Calvary Chapel Modesto was in <clears throat> Sherwood uh, Bible Church, we, we met uh, for a period of time when the church first started and uh, back in 1985. And we met, uh, thank you, Pastor Ross Bryles, who was very gracious to us in the early years. We met there for a short period of time, had afternoon services, and it was uh, the year that I think the 49ers were heading toward their first or second um, world uh, uh, championship, Super Bowl championship. And so the services were one, at one o'clock uh, kickoff time, and uh, the Niners had home field advantage all the way through on things. So it was a great test of our carnality and our spirituality for who showed up in the services. But we began there, and then we ultimately went over onto Leveland and shared a space with the delicatessen, and then back to Sherwood, and then down to 10th and F, and then ultimately here. But I remember in the very, very early months, certainly the first year, of uh, the church starting, that I got a phone call, a very odd phone call out of the blue, and, and it was a, a man who identified himself as a Christian, and he was wondering, uh, I think it was a Wednesday night or something, and he, and, and, or a Sunday night, and he was wondering whether uh, I would allow him to share uh, a teaching. He was a, a Christian from Africa uh, that evening. And you those people who know me well, I am extraordinarily conservative in this area. It wasn't like, yeah, cool, wow, come on in, just share anything that's on your heart. Um, you know, we don't, I don't take those kind of chances unless I know something about it. It was something about the phone call. And I said, well, what, uh, what's, what's going on here? What are you doing? Are you crisscrossing the United States or what's happening here? We had a conversation about it and I prayed and, and I had a piece about it. I said, why don't you come and I'll let you share so he came, I'll never forget the sermon that he taught. Some of you, I think, may, less than a handful uh, are, are still around from probably that evening service, but he taught on the tears of God, and it was a beautiful sermon. But one of the things that he did is he taught us a chorus that was um, a very popular in Africa at, the, at that time, and it came uh, from this verse, and it went something like, I'm not going to sing it to you, I'll rap it, I'm going to rap it for you in hip-hop, so just pretend, okay, wait a second, let me get, okay. But, um, but the, the song went, behold, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And the chorus was like, is there anything, anything, anything too hard for me? Is there anything, anything, anything too hard for me? And I don't know what the condition of all of our hearts were individually on that night. It ministered to us surely on that level, certainly spoke to us as in, in endeavoring to try and start another church in, in Modesto. And it was, a, it was a powerful time. And I've never forgotten that chorus uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the story, our personal story as a church related to uh, verse 27 here. And so this is what God speaks to, um, to Jeremiah. And therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. 
and the Chaldeans who fight against this city, they're going to come, and they're going to set fire to this city. They're going to burn it with all of the houses on uh, whose uh, roofs they have uh, offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me uh, to anger. And now he's giving the reasons for why this judgment is going to occur, their idolatry. Verse 30, because the children of Israel and the children of of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth, that is, from the beginning of the nation. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands. Again, their idolatry, says the Lord. Uh, Further reason for their judgment, for this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day, so I will remove it from before my face because of all of the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And then he spoke about uh, how disrespectful uh, their sin and their attitude uh, toward God was. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. Now, what we're engaged in as Christians is a personal relationship with God. This is not a, um, a game. This is not an institution. This is not a factory. This is, uh, this is a relationship with God. There is a God on the other side of this relationship that we have with him. We're, I think we're most often a very, very aware of what God's attitude is toward us and his faithfulness to be what we need him to be in this relationship. But we're less aware, I think, of the fact of what this relationship actually means to God and, and what our treatment of him in this relationship means to him when we treat him well, when we give him the respect and the honor and the glory that he's due, what that means to him, but then also to understand what idolatry, what disobedience, what uh, 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 disrespect toward him, the effect that that has upon him as well. And it's important to stop and remember that. What I do with my life and what I do in this relationship, he takes personally because it is a personal relationship that we're involved in with him. And their treatment of him, of his commandments, of his temple, uh, of the, uh, the, the idolatry and so forth, their unwillingness to listen to his prophets when he sent them over and over and over again, he took it as if he went up to speak, put yourself in a room where you would go up and to speak to someone in a large room, a large setting where people are milling and gathering, and you started to speak to someone, and they turn their back to you mid-sentence. I mean, it's just, it's the, it's, it's one of the, next to spitting on a person in the ancient world, you could not insult a person more greatly than that. 
And this is how God viewed what they had done in, in that uh, relationship and their treatment of him through their treatment uh, of the prophets. And they have set their abomination, verse 34, abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Speaking of the temple, they brought their idolatry straight in and idols into the very temple itself. We remember by way of application that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There shouldn't be idolatry or, or disobedience in our life, idolatry, things that we love more than God uh, within our lives. It affects God in the same way as it did uh, years, you know, in the, in the age and in, in time of, of Jeremiah. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them to do, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause uh, Judah to sin. And he confronts them concerning their high places and even their human sacrifice that marked a part of their history. And now, therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, the God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand uh, of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all of the countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good uh, of them and their children uh, after them. And so he makes it clear to Jeremiah, once again, I'm having you buy this land uh, because it is consistent with my promise that I'm making through you that they will come back into the land. I mean, anybody can just prophesy um, and, and speak words, but when a prophet like Jeremiah says what he says, but then he puts his money where his mouth is, he actually uh, lives the life that uh, it, it, a life that's consistent with what he's declaring for God, then that gets people's attention. So he confirms to Jeremiah, this land looks like it's worth nothing, that you're getting a bad deal here, uh, but uh, one day this, this property is going to be very, very valuable. I'd love to know what that plot of land is and what it's going for in Israel today. By the way, I've gone off from 17 shekels and uh, claimed to be a blood relative of Jeremiah uh, to try and uh, get it back. And I will, make them an everlasting, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, God said, and that I will not turn away from uh, doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land uh, with all my heart and with all my soul. And so uh, here is a, a prophecy related to the children of Israel that would be fulfilled when they came back into Judah uh, and, and Israel following the Babylonian captivity, but its, its fullest fulfillment is a far fulfillment uh, that'll occur uh, with the fear of God being in their hearts and, and their not departing from the Lord. That, uh, the, the fullest fulfillment will occur at Jesus' second 
uh, coming. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought uh, all of this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. God loves happy endings. And boy, sometimes he's got he's to lower the boom uh, to get us to a happy ending, and he's willing to do that. But I, he says, as surely as I promised these calamities, I'm going to keep this promise of good and fields will be brought, bought in this land of which you say uh, it is uh, desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the, hand of, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, uh, says uh, the Lord. So the whole land, the, the length and the breadth of it will once again uh, be filled and prospered as the Jews return uh, to uh, the land. It is interesting, and I think it's an important application related to all of this. Here is Jeremiah uh, living in his lifetime, and, and God is calling him to live the present tense of his life, which was extraordinarily uh, difficult. But he was to live the present physical human life that he, he had, but he was to live it uh, for a, a future time in the history of the children of Israel. He was to put his money here for a day that he would never see in his lifetime, but a subsequent generation among the Jews would see it as they would return to the land after that 70-year uh, 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 Babylonian uh, captivity. And uh, so here is Jeremiah. He's invested, called by God to invest in a, a very glorious future, long before that future ever gets unveiled. And I think that God does much the same thing uh, for us as well. Sometimes it seems funny to me, and I, I love being a Christian. You'll be relieved to hear that, I'm sure. And, um, and, and, uh, and mostly I enjoy being a pastor. Most of the time, I should say, um, it's in the 90 percentile. So don't be alarmed related to that. Uh, Mondays are kind of interesting. Uh, but that has nothing to do with you. It has entirely to do with me. But, um, but it is interesting when, you, when people look at your life as a Christian and, uh, and, and you think about how uh, your loved ones, your family members that don't know the Lord or your neighbors or coworkers and what they look at you. And it, just, it, it must just seem to them that we are absolutely perfectly wasting our lives. <laughs> I mean, here you are going through all of the things that you're going through and all of the hardship of this life that everyone else faces, and yet you refrain from all of the sex, drugs, rock and roll, all of the other things that people kind of give themselves to in order to get through and so forth, and you, you are missing out on what everybody else considers to be life in this life, and you live determined to invest completely in a life to come. And how strange uh, that must be to people. Sometimes it can seem strange to me. Uh, I don't let people know I'm a pastor unless they dig it out of me because people change their behavior as soon as they find that out. 
And, uh, and so, uh, but when, when people think about us as a Christian, certainly as a pastor too, you know, it's like what, I'll, sometimes I'll run into old friends that I haven't seen since high school. I had breakfast with one recently. I run into others periodically and they find out that I'm a pastor and it, and it just must, you know, you, you can see their mind start to work for how, how do you change the subject as fast as you can change the subject. I mean, who in their right mind would do something like that when, you know, there are things to achieve in life. There's, there's money to make. There's, uh, there's, there's titles to attain to. There's uh, significance in a worldly kind of, uh, of way, or prominence is a better word for that, that you're missing out entirely. You have, you're spending your life in a subculture that the world hardly notices. Don't you understand what you're doing? And yet we love to do it. And yet we love to do it. But it looks so strange from, from the outside as we do, as, as, as Jesus declared and said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where, the, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And one of the nice things about um, getting a little bit older, I'm not old yet, I'm just oldish, is that as enough time and decades begin to kind of go underneath the bridge, and even these kind of battles that might have gone on earlier in life or longings in terms of the things that everybody else is doing and maybe I'm not allowed to do, and these weren't things that had a, a huge hook in me, but they, they're things that, that, that you consider in the course of a, of a long pilgrimage in this world, and none of them put me in any danger, any kind of smacking my lips or longing for the world. I came to know Christ after having experienced the world on some level, and I knew that there was no future in it. So I never looked back longing uh, upon it. But it certainly is easier, and how thankful I am that at the age of 62, that I'm not coming to this realization, that there's nothing really to live for ultimately in, in this life, no experience that compares in this life uh, to living this quiet, uh, determined Christian life of fellowship with one another, the advancement of the kingdom of God, taking my little part, your little part, and the advancement of that kingdom in our little period in human history, and to live in this age for an age to come. And for people then to be confused by our lives and our priorities and how we spend our lives, but the thing they can't get out of their mind is they've put their money where their mouth is. They've put their time where their, where their mouth is. They're investing their life in what they claim to believe about this life and the life to come. And it's a powerful witness. And I don't say that every Chris Christian possesses that witness because not every Christian lives in a way that is described here by Jeremiah and what I'm describing to us tonight, but where it is present and hopefully in each one of our lives, it's a powerful witness to people as they watch it. And what a joy it is to be able to live for the kingdom that is to come 
as we enjoy this Christian life through this life. And, and I wouldn't exchange this life for 10 lifetimes uh, 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 away uh, from the Lord. I mean, it, 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 one day in, in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the Lord, as a daykeeper in the house of the Lord is worth a thousand spent elsewhere, even if that elsewhere isn't prohibited by the law of God. But here is Jeremiah, and, uh, and, and he brings his, the call of, of God upon Jeremiah's life to live not with this life uh, supremely the concern, but the will of God the supreme uh, concern, and then to live for the next life. And to know that all of the promises, just as God gave the promises to Jeremiah concerning the future of Israel, all of that came to pass. And one day, everything that God has declared in his word concerning the heaven that is to come, the life that is to one day come for each of us, that all of that is sure as it came to pass for the children of Israel and coming back from the Babylonian captivity. Let's stand together and we'll close tonight in prayer and a closing worship song. Thank you, Father, again as we close this evening and our time in the Word for Jeremiah, his life. We learn so much from his message, but we learn so much from his life, his confusion, Lord, his obedience to you, even when things didn't make sense to him, and yet the intimacy of relationship with you, that he felt he could bring anything and everything to you, his questions, Lord, his honest questions and then submitted to whether what it is that you would say or not say to him. His willingness, Lord, to lead a life in his hour in human history that looked absolutely crazy, the decisions that he made, how he spent his life to all of the people, even those that considered themselves to be God's people. It seemed like a perfect waste for, uh, of life the way that he was living, and then to realize that that is very much our portion as well in this hour in human history. And we pray that you would continue to give us the grace, Lord, not only to talk the talk, but to walk the walk and to live this life, Lord, not concerned for uh, ourselves and, and, uh, and, and experiencing all of the things that are there to experience in life, but would constitute a violation and a neglect or an abandonment of your call upon our lives, but to invest our lives, not in what is here, but invested in your will, Lord, with our focus upon the glory of the life that awaits us, the promises that are on the other side of this life. Thank you for the privilege of this Christian life, being a member of the kingdom of God. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus tonight that has made it possible. We thank you for the meaning and the significance that our life has that could, no one else experiences independent of knowing you and walking with you and serving you. Thank you for the blessing of being your children tonight and being a part of your family. And we bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.